0: You're about to join Niels Kostrup-Larsen on a raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent, yet often overlooked, investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Series. Welcome or welcome back to this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series with Mark resubsinski and I, Niels Kostrup-Larsen where each week we take the pulse of the global market through the lens of a rules-based investor. Mark, wonderful to be back with you this week. How are you doing? Good. Always good to see
1: you, uh, too. So uh, we're in August, which is supposed to be a vacation month. But eh, I don't know if August has always turned out to be a vacation. There seems as though we'll always get hit with August surprises. You know, I was having a discussion with some of my colleagues, and they said, like, well... We don't know whether August is going to be slow. And then someone else said, well, some people say like you should, you know, sell in May and wait until October. And then others have said like, well, you never want to trade October and then you don't want to trade December. And the next thing you know, we came up with the reasons why we shouldn't be trading it for at least nine to 10 months out of 12. So, so there, there never is a good or bad time for trading. So or vacations.
0: Well, okay, fair enough. You know, of course, that historically, um, and this is very interesting, completely off the topic, uh, uh, but now that you bring it up, just speaking about trading, right, or whether you should trade or whether you should just invest and invest for the long term. I don't know if you're know, aware of this, or I'm not sure whether this is something that is uh, also a rule in um, in the US, but in Europe, at least, if you are, I think if you're a broker, you have to disclose the percentage of your clients that lose money uh, on their accounts. And you have to disclose that on your website. And I came across this point listening to a podcast and reading a book recently. And and sure enough, you can go to some of these uh, uh, brokers um, and find it, and, and the percentage of clients that loses money in their brokerage account, it's north of 70%. Often it's north of 80%. So maybe they should take your advice, not trade in October and not trade in any of the other month and just buy and hold. Who knows?
1: No, but that's a, it opens up a bigger issue, which maybe we'll have time to talk about. Is this is that would you prefer, you know, a lot of small gains for let's say 10 out of 12 months, or would you prefer being a you know, let's say down on eight of twelve months, but then the four were very big months and and this is fundamental to when we talk about trend following or even hedge, hedge fund trading, is that which one is better? Is it, are you worried about your total return at the end of the year? Or what is the process in which you made that money? Um, and I think that most people always would prefer to have, I make a little every month as opposed to losing more than 50% of the time, but making bigger gains overall.
0: Yeah. I mean, it is um, quite educational, I would say, if you collect, say, 10 different track records of of some of the managers that's been around for 30, 40, or even like we had done almost 50 years, and you just simply look at the monthly return table, because it is exactly like you said, there's probably six or seven you know, losing months a year for sure in every single year. Some years will have more. And then you have like one or two months where not a lot happens to the upside. And then you have these one or two or three months per year where it's it's a nice, healthy, you know, good month. And that's just how it is. Uh not necessarily every single calendar year, but for the most part. But that is the challenge we are dealing with. That's the challenge we are, we're battling. It's it, People can't quite get their head around the fact that, that this is the quote-unquote uncertainty uh, that they get, although they get certainty in terms of most of these strategies on a rolling three-year basis, five-year, ten-year for sure are actually profitable.
1: Right. Are, are you interested in total return or are you interested in a smooth return? That might be lower, and and I probably would sort of say that the, the life we lead is to is an attempt to try to maximize total return, albeit that means that you're going to lose uh, more hairs, lose more sleep, get more gray hairs because you might have more than fifty percent down months, and and that's just in some sense that's part of a trading life.
0: Yeah. Very true. Well, that was a little bit of a sidetrack, but I, I enjoyed it. We've got quite a good uh, set of topics, as I always say, in my unbiased opinion, of course, uh, that we're going to be tackling. But before that, I always love to hear what's been sort of uh, on your radar, what's been catching your attention in the last few weeks since we spoke last?
1: Well, I guess the, what's been catching my attention is that, that there's not been anything that is really catching my attention. I think that there's a few things that really sort of stand out as this uh, China deflation, slow growth, because I, I think that you may have read in, a, in the newspaper that Jeff Curry, who is the analyst at uh, Goldman Sachs, you know, recently quit. And he was uh, a big advocate for the first super cycle, and he's been arguing for another super cycle. And while most trend followers in commodities uh, you can't sort of say that you can, quote unquote, exploit the super cycle. Generally, if we have a strong upturn across most commodity markets, you'll it's a little bit easier to make money from the long side than the short side. So a super cycle is a good thing for a, for a lot of commodity traders. Uh, I don't think that that's going to happen. You look at uh, the Fed, we're still sort of not sure what they're going to do. So that's become a non-issue. You look at the soft landing uh, story. You know, we, we were sort of saying the free wheels at the beginning of the year, we thought that for sure we'd have a recession, you know, for the second half or near the end of 2023. Now it's being pushed to 2024. Fiscal issues. Uh, We've got a downgrade by Fitch from AAA to AA plus. You know, with it, there should be no surprise there. At the same time, the, uh, the you know, the Fed is going to, you know, issue or the Treasury is going to issue close to a, trillion dollars in this quarter and close to another 800 billion in the next quarter so fiscal issues is a problem but these are all creeping problems so when you sort of look at shorter term trends that's really doesn't manifest in these creeping issues super cycle uh, china deflation uh fiscal issues soft landing so we're in an environment where there's sort of non-issues which are driving uh trades, and you see that in performance after the March bond debacle for a lot of trend followers. Markets have been fairly stable. We've been, you know, moving slightly higher, but there hasn't been sort of strong performance in in the last three to four months.
0: Yeah, very true. Um, However, I mean, I did notice that Jeff Curry had left Goldman Sachs. Uh, Jeff was on the podcast um, only a few months, I would say, and uh, I like, I have to say, I like his... uh, the way he um, explains his thesis, I know it hasn't played out in the major commodities just yet, like energies, like a lot of people are, are focusing on. But I mean, and not to make that as a part of his thesis, but I, I do notice that there are some commodity markets, uh, the softs, where some of them actually have made multi-year highs and are still making multi-year highs at the moment. Um, but you know it doesn't feel like a commodity super cycle because we need the metals we need the energy markets maybe we need the grains as well to kind of participate but i still wouldn't rule it out but we'll see time will tell interesting stuff now let's quickly just deal with the trend following part like we normally do uh, i mean this week as as you kind of alluded to in your comments um, not a lot has actually uh, is going on and performance is kind of treading water at the moment uh, my trend barometer is weak, down at 34 as of last night. That indicates a negative month for the uh, for the CTA industry. That's exactly what we're seeing at the moment. Btop 50 down about 1% for the month and 1% for the year. Uh, SockGen CTA is down about 75 basis points for the month, down about 1.8% for the year. The trend index down 1.4 for the month, down 2.85 for the year and the short term traders index losing about 80 basis points this month and down 3.8% this year the backdrop of that is that msci world uh, equity index is down 2.6% as of last night up 14.6 uh, bonds still struggling uh, down another 48 basis points in august um and the s&p 500 uh, is down 2.6 uh, as of last night and down uh, sorry up 16 0.4% um, this year, but you know you're right. There's not a lot really going on in 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 the markets enough for trend followers to have um, big swings in their performance. Now, that actually leads me to my next to the next topic. The first one I just want to throw at you, uh, Mark, because when nothing happens, performance is relatively quiet, which in some ways actually. Is, is beneficial to investors because people like certainty and they don't like the uncertainty and all of that. So they're certainly at the moment not getting a lot of uncertainty in their in their portfolios. And where I'm going with this is that investors sometimes change behavior. And I think one of the times where we can think back of this uh, happening was actually during the period where interest rates went to zero. I think a lot of investors who used to be very happy with being bondholders, um, change the way they invest, and they were kind of quote unquote forced to move into other investments like equities just to get some kind of return. Now interest rates are at five percent again, or more actually, uh, in many countries. Uh, how do you see? How do you see this? I mean, do you think investors will change behavior again? And if you do, in in what way uh, do you think they might uh, change? Well, th- this is probably one of the top research
1: topics for anyone involved in global macro, and it should also be for those in in trend following. So when you think about the post-financial crisis period, that was the period of, we'll call it the reach for yield. So the reach for yield was, this is that I'm not getting any money on my cash, so I'm going to move out the curve. I'm going to buy risky assets. I'm going to choose riskier fixed income securities relative to treasuries i'm c- going to constantly sort of like reach for new products and reach for yield okay that period is over so they said so now we've gone back to a, a completely different environment where not only is uh nominal yields higher but the real yields which were negative for an extremely long period of time depending on how you look at, uh, or measure inflation. So let's, let's just look at, uh, one year inflationary expectations or just, you know, current inflation, the real yield is now positive, which changes completely the, the, the behavior that uh, we should change the behavior we're seeing. So instead of there's, uh, the reach for yield, we should see the reach for cash. So, uh, why should you hold uh, risky assets if you can already hold, get a real return on your money, your cash money? Why would you want to hold, uh, you know, a risky asset when you could get over five percent in the US T bills? And not only is that uh, sort of like a, a massive change in how people will perceive their investment universe, but also you have an inverted yield curve. So why should you actually sort of go out the yield curve when you could hold cash and, and your return on cash is actually pretty good versus even moving out, you know, the, the treasury curve. So there's, there's no need to do this. So uh, when you think about it, this is that this should create a tremendous amount of caution in investors to say, you're going to have to prove to me that I'm going to have to have, uh, I'm going to get a higher return for me to move out of cash. Now, would you say that this is a very, you know, um, you know, uh, if if you told me that the curve, uh, that we're going to be at five percent cash, you are going to tell me you're going to have an inverted curve. If I asked you what would happen to equities in this environment, you know, I'll I'll, I'll take, you know, I'll assume that you're every man as as, the, as a representative every man in Europe. What do you think you would do, or what would you think if I told you this information at the beginning of the year?
0: <laughs> well, you probably wouldn't have guessed that equities were doing so well so far this year. Right,
1: exactly. So so here you have this, is, is and this is what really sort of, you'd expect a change in behavior. You'd expect caution. And yet what we have is, is that the uh the QQQs, if you look at this, is up significantly. If anything, it looks like it's an overcrowded trade. You look at uh, a large cap, which is more tech, uh, which is uh, should be more interest-sensitive uh, because it's uh, more duration. it has more equity duration. That's done really well. Uh, we'll say for the rest of the S- uh, you know, S&P, so if you look at, at the RSP, which is an equally weighted uh, S&P 500, it's underperformed versus cap weighted. So in some sense, there is a little bit of caution, but you would not expect that we would have a strong equity market so far in 2023, given those facts. So now what you sort of say is is that how quickly does behavior change? And I would sort of say we haven't seen the change in behavior associated with higher interest rates. But when you think about even from, uh, you know, of, of futures trading, bond trading, FX trading, is this it? that uh, why would you want to take extra risk if you could make 5% nominal on your, on your money? And so now what happens is that that should create caution. And what caution means is, is that there's going to be less speculative behavior. At some level is, is that we always talk about that you need speculators to offset hedgers. You need uh, you know, more flow into risky assets to be able to balance off you know, the other demands of, of other traders in the market, and we probably won't have that. So consequently, this is that we should have a slower speed of adjustment in prices, which might actually be good for trends, but we haven't seen that either yet. So right now, I think that this is one of the key questions that we're gonna have to face But as of yet, we haven't seen the expected change in behavior given the higher yields and the inversion of the yield curve. Perfect example is is that given uh, that an inverted yield curve always, I'll I'll use the term in quotes, always predicts a recession. And now we're not even sure if that's the case. Can you imagine if we sort of said, here's the inversion of the curve, not only in front end, but along the entire length of the curve, now we've been waiting this for almost uh, well over a year. Where we're still sort of say that it's no idea exactly when that uh, recession will occur. Now, maybe we're just, we're trying to, you know, fit a story that just doesn't exist and it will come, but this, uh, the facts don't, or, or this market environment doesn't seem consistent with what we've seen in the past when we've seen inverted curves or higher real rates.
0: Yeah no, I would agree with that and I, I to, and and you know, I like uh, the way you uh, discussed the the issue. I was kind of thinking at it slightly in a slightly different way. I was thinking that well, if you can get 5% risk free, you would certainly want to expect more from your uh, other types of investments. So let's look at that. What does it mean for trend following? Well, as I've discussed with some of our other uh, co-hosts uh, in the last couple of weeks, well, actually, that 5% on cash, you can add that to your trend-following return because a trend-following fund will mostly have 70 to 80% of the money in cash. So during the 2010s, we were earning nothing. Now we're earning, you know, say 4% uh, on on the total portfolio comes from, from interest rate uh, income. So that's already a boost to the return. So those returns should should be higher. That's fine. But the other thing I was thinking of, um, and not I wanna, don't want to make this too long a point. I, I want to get to your topics. But the other thing I was thinking of is if you lift risk-free returns and people start to expect or think that they want more than just 1% or 2%, which I think almost people got kind of used to or, you know, satisfied with only a few years ago maybe they're also willing to take a little bit more um, maybe they're willing to accept a little bit more volatility to get to 12 13 14 15 percent returns which is uh, obviously what a lot of these trend following funds can produce uh, over the long run albeit with higher volatility uh, for sure well, you,
1: you opened up a big Pandora's box here. So, so the big Pandora's box is, is that when people look at track records for, you know, CTAs and managed futures and, and uh, you look at what the benefit of cash has been on track records over the long run, it's been, you know, fairly significant. So in the 80s and 90s, when we had higher uh, cash rates and higher real rates, is that you added that into your uh, returns? It 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 gave ever all the funds a good uh, boost. Okay, now what we see saw is, is that so when you look at uh, everyone sort of let's say post the financial crisis, there are a lot of skeptics who said that well, trend following is dead and you know, no one's making money. Oh, this is horrible. Well, you know, at the same time as this is that let's assume that you were charging you know you know. Two, two and 20. And, but let's say that the nominal uh, rates were 4%. Well, that means you started out to, at the year with a positive 2% return on your cash. You know, we'll just, you know, making just adjustments for how much margin you use. So when rates were zero, then basically as I said, and you had a two percent management fee you're two percent in the hole from the uh, from the, from day one because the, you know you that was going to be that huge drag that you had nothing to balance it off so you had to trade out of that hole to begin with now at some level that's not huge but at the same time this is that that would put a big drag on the performance of all of the type of of futures traders that hold the high cash balances relative to the amount that the, uh, they use in margin so this does have a big impact on on track records and you always have to think about like well what is a trader's return x of all of cash so because that that tells you what the real skill is
0: yeah and actually on 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 that point actually at, at the firm i work we started removing that income from our composite track record back in 2007 because it wasn't really our return so when we show our numbers we don't include that extra in the program returns You have to do it for a fund, of course, so those returns will be higher. But you're right, it's an important point. Um, But I want to pivot to something else, uh, but it's linked to this, because you and I have often discussed that investors don't like uncertainty. We know that. As humans, we don't like uncertainty. And back when interest rates were about this level or higher, this is some time ago, and certainly when you and I uh, were working in the industry a lot of funds grew their AUM by creating guaranteed products. Some of the biggest firms in our industry were kind of masters of structuring these guaranteed products where they would take 100 dollars and they would put $70 or $75 into a zero coupon bond, yielding five, seven percent, whatever. And then that free cash, because they did they knew they had that free cash for another five, seven years that was pretty much enough to trade the program uh, or the trend-following strategy at full speed, almost at least. And I think that was a very popular product, even though you could argue there's no magic in it. You can do it yourself. You just put 70% of your money in a seven-year bond and you do the rest and you put it in trend-following. But do you think because of the way investors behave and their preferences... Now that we have real returns, I mean, would you expect these products to, to make a, a comeback?
1: Well, there, there's two answers. One is, is that we know that, that, uh, investors hate uncertainty. A lot of the drive for those structured products was when you have higher nominal interest rates, because then what you could do is you could cr- create the guarantee at, at a relatively cheap price. And so we still have to, but, and so, because it's some sense you could buy a zero coupon bond and if let's say it was 70 cents on the dollar, then you could take the other 30 cents and use that at margin and then be able to trade on this. So, so you could create products that c- give you uh, the, the guarantee. We still can't be able to do that because I've looked at, uh, like, whether we could do a constant proportion, portfolio insurance or, or a structured product. And, and I was looking at, do this something like this for an insurance company and we're still not at the levels that you know it's hard to structure it people want uh want that product it's the it's there's also the problem of structuring it and whether you can actually deliver the product now the key is that that, that, when you think about uncertainty is is that uncertainty is not the same as volatility and Going back to the environment is, is that when we talk about all of the things that are going on in 2023, you say, like, oh, what would you think volatility would be at? And, and you look at the VIX, is, it's actually on a fairly low level. It's not at the lows, and it is very, has a very positive skew, but we'll sort of say that volatility in the marketplace is not very high on a measurable basis versus history. But then if you look at uncertainty, so there are different ways to look at macro uncertainty. There's policy uncertainty indices. Those are actually much higher. So there's actually a, a discrepancy between the uncertainty in the market and the volatility in the market. And, and we'll sort of say those two can't be maintained because if you have policy uncertainty, it's because uh, we don't know what policies can be uh, choices are going to be made. It shows that there's uncertainty in the newspaper. So if that uncertainty is going to have to, well, that uncertainty is going to have to be resolved and that's going to cause markets to move. So there's people who will like to deal with unser, uh, the uncertainty. Can we offer products? Hard structure. On the other hand, what you find is, is that when people do face uncertainty, that actually that they slow their behavior. So the 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 adage is always is that if there's high uncertainty and if you're an investor, well then dollar cost average, right? So if I dollar cost average, then I'm going to get a, the average price over a period of time, as opposed to saying like, oh gee, I got at the, I uh, bought in at the high and I sold in at the low. <laughs> now what happens is that if more people are dollar cost averaging across a number of different asset classes what do you think will happen to the speed of adjustment? Probably sort of say it was slow. If the speed of adjustment slows, what does that mean for finding trends or the, uh, or the existence of trends? We probably sort of say that there will be a greater chance of an existence of trends. So, So high uncertainty, low volatility, or the perception that there's high uncertainty will actually cause people to behave differently than if we had... Uh, low uncertainty, and and similar volatility. Okay,
0: cool. All right, well, with that backdrop, let's dive into some of the topics that you uh, kindly brought along. And as usual, I'm not entirely sure where we're going to go on these, but I have some uh, bullet points that I can uh, share, and then we'll see where we go. The first thing we're going to talk about is kind of the macro, micro, not sure if it's the environment or certain issues and so, uh, and you mentioned a few of them, but I, I'm gonna give you the mic and uh, see where, where this leads.
1: You always have to think about markets as being forward-looking as opposed to backward-looking. And what we'll sort of say that we're, we've been in a period of relative stability on the, on the macro side, but at the same time, it's says that we still have a lot of issues that still haven't been resolved, whether it's the China deflation story, the Fed story, which maybe we'll get some better idea after after uh, Jackson Hole, the soft landing story, and all of those. So when you think about when we come back from Labor Day, those would be the three issues that are really going to sort of play to uh, a, a lot of the fears or uh, concerns of investors. Along with that, it's going to be the fiscal issue because there's just so much debt that's being issued. And at the same time, we're still in, in, engaged in quantitative uh, tightening that being said is, is that what we're really also facing is a micro environment which in some senses is, is that uh, we see that can have a big impact when the macro environment is more uh, unclear perfect example of this is, is that as at the end of the uh, second quarter so there was a lot of short covering by hedge funds and a lot of de-risking well we'll probably sort of say that that didn't play out in market averages but if you involved in individual stock trading, a lot of those structural issues of what other edge funds are doing, the flows that they're putting into the market or taking out of the market has actually had a much bigger impact on performance than um, maybe uh, an investor would think about when he only thinks about top of the market. And what really that uh, leads to is an area of research that I'm trying to focus on I. And that is uh, what we'll call it dis- dispersion uh, trading, and not dispersion as a trade, but the dispersion of, of markets and how that will influence your return potential. Now, we'll probably sort of say that the uh, post financial crisis was the, uh, was the period of crisis alpha. And uh, uh, I'm I'm a little early to say this, but we might sort of say I'm I want to think about now dispersion alpha. You know, what do I mean by that? Is that dispersion is the distance between individual markets relative to an index. So, uh, so in some senses, is that uh, uh, it's how diverse the return profile for a set of markets we trade. And when you think about it, is this is that. Uh, If you're trading a a set of markets what you really want to have is you want to have more dispersion because then that'll give you more opportunities both on the long and short side relative to a less dispersed environment so we're constantly want to think about is that if we can measure dispersion can we then say something about what will be the ability for us to uh, to generate extra returns so uh, now Dispersion is different than correlation, so uh, markets could be correlated, okay, but that doesn't mean that they're going to uh, be uh, more or less dispersed because we're that, we're looking at the actual return as opposed to the you know covariance to, to variance. We do know that if correlations go higher, then dispersion is going to go down. But its dispersion is that what we actually want to want to trade, and that dispersion is what is going to generate us return for a portfolio.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, I guess it goes back to this uh, divergence-convergence uh, discussion to some extent,
1: right? So, so this is sort of like a, a another level of thinking about convergence and divergences is that what we really want to have is is that. Uh, you want to have a, uh, if we trade a lot of markets, what you want to have is you want to have divergences on, uh, on, on a more localized level. So uh, when we started our discussion, we talked about super cycle for commodities. And we'll sort of say that softs of having sort of, you know, some very big gains or highs. You look at corn market, and on the other hand, corn is actually sort of has is, had is, is a significant decline over the last couple of months. We see oil is actually going higher. So in some sense, you know, we have uh, uh, we have a lot of different uh, dispersion that's going on. And I think that that's going to have an in- influence on in what our return potential is. And so so another way to think of this is that I could have the overall market relatively stable. But if I have more dispersion, I could still be able to make money as a trend follower because it could be a matter is, is that I'm short some of those... Uh, so it's corn, and I'm I'm long, uh, you know, crude. I'm long the softs, and I could and, and overall, if you look at let's say uh, a commodity index, it doesn't seem like there's there's a lot going on, but under surface, it might be uh, uh, there might be a lot of activities.
0: All right, well, let's move on to the next challenge, so to speak, because you're talking about in your comments to me, you talked about X anti and ex post. Problem for quant research. So I would love to know where we are heading with this uh, particular topic. Well, I'm gonna I'm,
1: I'm gonna switch a little bit because the one thing that I I, I found that I was, uh, was sort of an interesting piece of research is this whole idea of uh, of motivated reasoning and biases, and and that's what we're gonna then talk about. This ex ante and ex post. This is it. So. It's interesting that a lot of, and this is more from the psychology research, they, they find that it takes more information to make you believe something you don't want to believe than something you do believe. So uh, so if you believe something, then, you know, you're always going to be looking for confirming evidence or you'll say, oh, that evidence makes perfect sense. And then we'll sort of say that the stuff that uh, doesn't fit what your uh, what your belief patterns or, or your uh or what you would like to believe, well, then you're going to say, like, well, okay, you're going to come up with a, a number of questions for why that doesn't, uh, doesn't apply. And I think that that actually has a big impla- impact on how we uh, look and how do we actually do research. So uh, on the one hand, this is that if, you're, uh, if you believe in discretionary fundamental uh, trading, it's going to be pretty hard to convince someone that you know a quant strategy is going to be a better approach so he's kind of constantly look for evidence is that let's so, so that piece of evidence that said that let's say the one quant that doesn't do well He's like ah oh, of, of course that that proves my point of why we want to be a discretionary trader similarly is is that when you think about it is this is that uh, uh if you're a trend follower then of course you might want to sort of say like, well. I'm always gonna believe in trend following, and yeah, I'm gonna to have to be pretty strongly motivated or to 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 switch my point of view. So, now, that doesn't mean that you're wrong. It just means that the, the level that of, uh, of information you're gonna need necessary to change your mind is gonna be higher, okay? And in some sense, that's why we wanna be, you know, quants, because in some sense, you can be able to use numbers to be able to sort of take out your, we'll call it this, uh, motivating reasoning bias. So, because if you sort of say, like, I look at, you know, one strategy versus another strategy, I can sort of say, well, what do the numbers tell me? If one makes more money, then you can sort of say that, well, that's going to be hard to refute. Now that doesn't mean motivated reasoning won't try, but then it's going to make a big, a big difference. Now, that being said, someone did comment, uh, uh, you know, when I started talking about this, is that well, there could be motive, motivated reasoning bias for uh, mo- uh, modelers themselves, and and I think that that's true. But I think that that's uh, what we want to try to do as researchers is how can we be agnostic or as ag- agnostic as possible. So that means is that you say like how can you sort of say. There are objective measures to say whether one model is better than another. So, now, how does this all fit in with ex ante uh, uh, or non ex ante trading? Is this is that, you know, what I found is, this, is that uh, what people do is, is sort of uh, how they approach research is, is, is very different. And it's good to understand how people approach a, re- a research problem. Because that will determine exactly you know what kind of answer you're going to get or what uh, or or how you pursue research. So one will will sort of say is a, is, a, is an ex ante is is, it, is so you hear about a story you sort of see some phenomena and then you say well can I form a testable hypothesis? So let's take something that we did just talking a little bit earlier. Uh, we talked about the inversion of the yield curve and we said that this should have a big impact on. On, um, you know performance uh performance meaning is it should change people's behavior on some senses is that we can sort of say that that's very testable right we can uh we can be able to sort of say uh, let's look at all the periods when there has been inversion the yield curve let's then see what uh, whether there's been a change in uh, return patterns across a number set of markets if the answer is uh yes, there have, then we could sort of say this is a factor or feature that we want to try to add into a model. If the answer is no, then we could sort of say like, well, we've tested it. We found out whether it's countable and then we move forward. And then we might sort of say like, well, let's just use our existing models. So from a, from a trend following perspective, it could be, is this that uh, the hypothesis would be, well, inversion would have some type of impact on trending and trendiness then we could sort of say, can we be able to test that? If the answer is, is that the answer is no. then you say, well, there's no reason to change our existing behavior. If the answer is yes. Then the question comes in, is that how do we sort of adjust our behavior? Now the trend follower would probably have a different view is, is that he say like, well, what I'm going to do is to say like, I don't know whether these features or factors can have an influence, uh, And it really doesn't matter because I'll just look at, uh, follow my trend models. And if there is more trendiness during inversion, well, I should pick it up and I'll see higher performance. And so I don't need to test any alternative hypotheses. What I could ex post, I could sort of say like, well, I made money. Let's look back and find form a narrative on why I made money, but I'm not going to sort of test ex ante some type, uh, some type of, uh, feature that we think that might be influential. And so in some senses that the key to research is, can you come up with something that's measurable? Can you count it? And is there enough count that you could have that it could be meaningful? And if you can't count it and it's, and if, or it's a non-countable type event, then the whole idea would be to say, well, then we'll just say things happen and you should stick with what you have. So so there is a, a, a different ways of doing research of saying this is that I'm going to test you know features and look at whether they're accountable, or I sort of say I sort of say that I can't sort of discern what those features are going to uh, mean for markets. So therefore, I'll follow my existing strategy and then maybe use that as a narrative after the fact.
0: It kind of um, I mean this is obviously a very familiar topic uh, also to this podcast because as you know uh, some of our best friends in this uh, industry um, have kind of decided to stay with what uh, they've done for the past three or four decades and not kind of deviate away from that philosophy that they were taught and and what you're saying here is i hear it is that actually as researchers we should be We should continue to be open-minded. But I think also, I mean, I think the challenge you could think, and I think it's a fair challenge, and that is if you have something that has worked for you for a long period of time, and you therefore build a trust and belief in in the process, it can be, as a human being, I guess, it can be very hard to wanting to change. I mean, people in general don't like change, and so... I think it it does pose a question and therefore I wonder deep down if some of the changes we've seen in our industry in terms of research, in terms of how people um, do things, is basically based on the fact that they are bringing in other people uh, with different backgrounds and they kind of have maybe more the freedom of trying new things and then maybe potentially coming up with something that can convince or compel the approach to be changed right in some sense is it if you uh,
1: if you know your motive, uh, your limitations you might say is is that uh, I may need to have other people join my firm who have a different point of view that can actually you know sort of uh, have a different perspective and and we'll sort of say that it doesn't mean that you have to change it just means is that how can you be able to sort of reduce or eliminate the potential for you know you know motivated reasoning, and become more agnostic on what are the choices you're going to make? Now, ultimately, this comes down to an issue of uh, I call it the uh, the the Goldilocks models or Goldilocks modeling you know issue. This is at, if you remember old, Gold, old Goldilocks in her porridge. Some were too hot, some were too cold, and they're always looking for just right. And the same applies to models, this is that some might have a lot of features, some might have few features. So how do you find you know the set of features that are just right? And in general, there's probably two schools of thought. One, we'll call it the, uh, let's, uh, let's you know keep it as simple as possible, in the vernacular, sometimes people will say that that's the kiss method. Keep it, sophist- uh, keep it, keep it uh, simple, stupid. I like to say is that you want to keep it uh, keep it uh, sophisticatedly simple. Either way, is this that you just sort of say that uh, that the more features you put in, or the more conditions you put in, then the greater likelihood that there could be a particular failure, or there could be the potential for overfitting. So. We'll say a traditional trend follower said i am truly worried about overfitting issues given my fear of overfitting i want to keep it as simple as possible the other view would be to say is this, that uh i think that there are a lot of conditions that i could add that could potentially add value because they, because there are a lot of exceptions that are occur often enough that i could adjust my behavior accordingly and so now that's becomes an issue is, is that well which one is right? And so no different than Goldilocks. Sometimes this is that you're you're you like hotter porridge and some people like colder porridge. So that's a choice that you have to uh, that you have to make. But at the same time this is that you want to try to keep it things
0: as simple as possible. now the big issue that you really wanted to discuss I've kind of kept you talking about other things so far but there's something that I think there was uh, more um, uh, on your mind this week and that is something that may sound boring but it's incredibly important in our industry um, and that's transaction cost something we don't actually discuss very often on on the podcast so I uh, I'm very interested in in where you want to go with that and and what are your thoughts and findings? Uh, on this topic,
1: well, ne- next to accounting, transactions costs is probably the topic that's that's uh, the most boring and people are least interested in uh, in wanting to uh, have a discussion of. Yet, I'm going to venture into the uh, into the area of the mundane and the boring with transactions costs, and the reason why is this is that you know I've been obviously working with you know my my new partners. Uh, and we've been building some new models and we've been talking to, uh, to investors. And so we're showing back-tested results. And when we show back-tested results, Niels, you've, you've seen those discussions. How do you think those usually go? <laughs> exactly, yes. So, so there's a certain amount of cynicism is, is that, that most investors will say, I've never seen a bad back-test in my life. and then, And then what they'll do is they'll say, whatever backtest you show me, my rule of thumb is, is that I'm actually going to cut it by 50%. So if you show me a sharp ratio of 1.5, I five, I'm going to assume in reality, it's going to be 0.75, right? So if you show me 10% returns, you know, on an annualized basis, I assume you're going to, if you, if you get a little bit above five, then I going to say like, yeah, that's what pr- probably I'm going to expect. And so you go in there and you sort of have the argument and say like, well, no, we've actually done a really good job of back te- uh, of doing our back tests and we've accounted for all the costs associated with tradings. And it's almost as though that they, they sort of don't really believe you and you still have to get at this issue of, of how do you sort of get people more comfortable with back tests and, or how do you actually account for that pro- properly in, in your models. And the issue is actually sort of not trivial because – in some sense, this is that when you look at the difference between live performance and theoretical performance, you could sort of say that there's a number of, of reasons for why the two could differ. So one, it could be this is that you didn't really account for transactions costs. So your live performance is going to be lower than your theoretical because you didn't, you didn't sort of properly account for that. And we'll talk about what that means in just a second. Second, it could be structural. So what you think you can trade, you know, it's not possible. And that could be, is is that if you're shorting stocks, whether, you know, can you actually uh, be able to short it? Is it going to be hard tomorrow? Is it going to be on a restricted list? So there are issues of uh, structure. And uh, that could also include, for example, you want to trade a certain size, but for some markets or have very little liquidity. So it's not possible to be able to do it. And then the third would be sort of like the difference between when you trained your model in one period versus what the live period were going to be look like. Let's say if you train your model when interest rates were zero, and then you're going to trade it during a period when interest rates are high, let's say 5%, would you expect that there would be a difference in performance between those two periods, between the live and we'll call it theory or your training period? The answer is yes. So so in some senses that that's another, you know, way that you could affect your your backtesting, but in the near term, that, that one's a little bit harder to deal with because you have to then look at what history might provide and what the history, what the future might look like. But the one thing that you can control is 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 the transactions cost. And we'll sort of say that there's two ways to do it. You know, for your back testing, one is is that you know get a good estimate of what your true cost would be. Okay, that's that's one thing. But then the other thing is this to sort of say like, well, how do you sort of trade less? If you trade less, what happens to your transactions cost or your trading cost? Well, they're they're going to go down, right? So, and that's a choice you could make inside models. So that it isn't as, uh, you know, the simplistic view of transactions costs is you say like, well, I just assume that I have to pay a brokerage and then a bid ask spread. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to nick every price and the entry and exit based on those, uh, that fixed cost assumption. That's going to lower my expected return, okay, which would then influence, uh, you know, my, my, my model performance. But that doesn't really get at the heart of the issue, which is what are the total cost of trading a given strategy? So what I did was to try to come up with what I call a, uh, a a checklist of what things investors should look at and what managers should look at to try to account for or deal with transactions cost when you build models. And and it's sort of, let's say, a universal view. is Is, is that like, well, you know, These are things that you should be aware of when you start to think about uh, the cost structure and what the impact on what live versus theoretical would be. And so one would be, you know, we'll call it this, the strategy rationale itself. And so that could be, well, is it behavior or structural on what what I'm going to actually generate or what I'm going to be able to profit from? And and that also means is that if we call it the strategy rationale, are you trying to exploit long term or short term you know returns? So, in general, is that if it's a short term model, it's going to have higher costs, and the costs are going to be more important than a longer term model. So consequently, you have to sort of say like, well, I got to be more transaction conscious if I have a shorter term model than a longer term model. Second is like, what is the target universe? And we'll sort of say that uh, it could be is that if I trade large cap stocks, my transactions costs are going to be relatively low. If I trade in an equity universe, which uh, includes more small cap stocks, well, then that trading universe or target universe is going to have a big impact on what my cost structure would be. In the futures world, you could think about it as as, as if you're trading only the most liquid futures markets, transactions costs aren't going to be as as important but we see that there are a number of managers who've come up with that they, they want to trade sort of the less liquid names if you trade the less liquid names by definition you're going to have to be more cost conscious the transactions costs are going to be more problematic and the potential for structural issues like limited volume and your ability to be able to access the liquidity when you need it is going to be uh a much bigger issue next is is it we'll call it we will call it data and input assessment and in some senses is that uh, whenever you think about transactions cost you don't really think about data but data is becoming more expensive especially if let's say that you're going to use uh alternative data sets it's also becomes much more of an issue if let's say you're a macro trader a trader Data is subject to revisions, and that's a cost that you're going to have to sort of take in account or look at. Next is, is that you know, when you think of this checklist, is you have to think about the testing or the sample sizes that you use. If you have a shorter term model, that means it's going to have more trades. This is that you may not have to go back in history, or your sample size may not have to be as large as if you have a longer term model because you want to have a Large number of trades to actually trade, uh, to look at, to try to determine whether your model has been trained properly. And we'll sort of say that you want to also have as long a term back tests as possible because then you're going to cover a lot more environments. At the same time, this is that if you cover more environments, then you could sort of say that your profit score could be driven by periods that may not exist currently or may not exist in the future or more or less likely to occur in the future so more is not always better than less uh now the next issue of of when you think about a checklist for backtesting and and transactions cost is, is exactly how do you sort of limit your transactions and so some models they focus in on how do i reduce the amount of rebalancing if i rebalance less then I'm going to cut my transactions uh, so my overall cost structure is going to be less. Others are going to say like, well, one way I could cut my trades is to have bands or thresholds. I I won't trade unless I cover the cost of trading on my trades. One way that, you know, let's say a lot of trend followers would look at is, is that, well, if let's say a price goes above the moving average in a very simple case, well, does it have to exceed by a certain amount? Is there a band before I actually trade that I need to get through before I would actually create a transaction? So others is looking at liquidity filters. This is that I filter out those names that I don't think are gonna be very liquid because the cost of trading is gonna be greater. So, and on transactions cost itself, this is that when you look at back tests, a lot of people, if it's a longer term model, sort of say well we always trade on the close and when reality is you find out this is that that you may not actually trade that in production on the close you may want to trade on the open but then you have opening auctions there's sort of a a cost associated with trading on the close and so how you set up the back test is going to be enough uh an impact on what your live returns would be if let's say you don't trade them the same way. And also I think this is that we see is is that now, instead of trading uh, you know, at at a certain price, more and more are trading on TWAP or a VWAP basis where where they're looking at the weighted average average price that they can get. And that and if you're gonna trade that in a live version, then you gotta do that in your back test, otherwise you're gonna get a lot of slippage. And finally, I think that uh, well my Uh, well sort of checklist is is it what is the uh you know production processing and I think that a lot of people when they build models they think of themselves as being in a laboratory and that's great but when you trade a system then you have to think like an engineer because you in some sense you're you're making a production process so how do you actually sort of how does your production process vary from what you've done in the back test? And if the two of them don't match up, well then of course you're, you're gonna have, let's say, tracking error between live and theoretical. So all of these things are, 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 are important. And I guess I'd sort of say that I'm on a, uh, a mission to try to spend more time talking with investors to sort of say, how do you add more realism in back tests, so that then the cynicism that we see in back testing, uh, you know, uh, views by investors or the, we'll call it the haircut that you see, can actually be reduced. Now, that doesn't mean that a back test is going to be representative of what you could do in the future, but you want to be able to sort of say, like, well, at least we've taken into account all of the factors and our production process is going to match what we've done in back testing. So that people could be able to say, I can't guarantee what the future might hold, but I do know it's not going to be driven by transactions cost or production processing.
0: Yeah, and I think that's actually a really important point. I mean, first of all, I know uh, it, this may sound uh, not as one of the most sexy thing we do in trend following, but it is very, very important um, because every model that goes live comes from some kind of backtest, uh, and therefore we need to make sure that what we do is, is realistic and and that we can replicate it in real life. But of course, what you also pointed out is that this is just one of those parts that goes into developing a model that actually you do believe will do well in the future because that's, which is another um, sort of can of worms we won't go into today, but it comes down to again, these things about whether we are, you know, how much are these being influenced by historical data and so on and so forth. But yeah, it's just, it's fascinating. Uh, it's a fascinating journey. It is still fascinating to me that some of these concepts were developed so many years ago, decades ago, and that they still work. And because some of the questions we often get on the podcast and that I also seen discussed on other podcasts that I uh, follow, and, and that is this thing about, well, you know the markets keep changing. How can these models continue to to work? You, you would have to go and change them all the time. and and actually, that's not true. The concepts are very, very robust and adapt, so to speak, and uh, which is obviously one of the reasons why uh, I have so much conviction in this strategy, even uh, even after quite a long time in in doing this
1: well, that's a, that's actually a good topic for next time we talk because, we'll we'll sort of say that uh you know how do you make a robust model and we'll sort of say that if you're using for example uh, you know a a rule base that's sort of digital okay, price is above a moving average and i'm I'm simplifying that is actually fairly that's going to be fairly robust because you know not you're not measuring any parameters you're just setting on off switch and so so uh, we'll we'll say it's a digital decision uh let's say different models that actually sort of look at factor risk where they sort of sort based on some factor and you sort of say i'm going to you know buy the top decile and sell the bottom decile those are fairly robust now that doesn't mean they work but they're actually robust when you look at a regression model then you sort of say well there is the parameter uncertainty because that's uh that's uh that's has to be estimated and so what is the period that you estimate and will that estimated period then match the future so we'll we'll sort of say that traditional people who look at the we'll say digital decisions are going to have by uh general are going to be more robust that doesn't mean that they're right but we're going to say that's it they're not going to be as influenced by you know parameter uncertainty on the other hand the people who do regression they might get uh, better nuance and behavior but then you constantly have to worry about okay is my estimation of the reaction function of people's behavior correct today relative to what it was in the past so it's a different type of risk but what we want to try to do at least with our transactions cost checklist is to say how do we take that part of the back test off the table and then sort of have the discussion and focus on other things
0: yeah no no absolutely well said mark as always uh this was uh very very good and nice to catch up with you and uh, thank you so much for bringing these topics to uh our audience Next week, Jim will be back on the podcast, uh, so I'm sure we're going to be tackling some uh, topics from the world of volatility, of which there seems to be very little of at the moment, um, but we'll see. And, uh, of course, if you have any questions, as usual, you can email them to info at toptradersonplot.com. Make sure you go and follow not just uh, us here uh, in terms of the hosts, uh, on Twitter and LinkedIn and wherever, but actually also check out the website. We we actually post quite a lot of stuff now in written form as well, um, so uh, why don't you go and check that out before the week is over. Anyways, that's it for now uh, from Mark and me. Thanks ever so much for listening. We look forward to being back with you next week, and until next time, take care of yourself and take care of each other.